Let's turn now, friends, as the Lord would enable us, to the uh, portion we read, and in particular, Luke chapter 18, and looking at verse 8, and especially the phrase at the end of verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. This is um, not going to be an easy sermon. Was it easy for me to prepare it? And it's not going to be easy for you to listen to. It's going to be a challenging sermon. But it's a sermon, in my view, that we need to hear. It focuses on this very question. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? In other words, what will the prevailing situation be when Jesus comes a second time? This is a serious and a solemn question. Now, in the context, his words here relate to the teaching he delivered in the previous chapter, chapter 17, from verse 20 forwards. And he was studying the prevailing conditions uh, of his own day and generation, and particularly the lack of leadership amongst the people of God. And he was warning them of the suddenness and the inevitability of divine judgment. Now that, of course, can apply for our uh, own understanding. The judgment of God can apply in three ways, at least in this context. It can apply to the uh, Jews of New Testament times, perhaps in the first instance, that's where we should lay the emphasis. If you look at the last verse of chapter 7, that is obviously the carcass of the Jewish nation. But then, um, secondly, it can apply to our own personal judgment on a day of our death because we will be judged on the day in which we die. And thirdly, it can apply to the final judgment of all men when Jesus comes the second time. Now, as I mentioned, Jesus saw in his day the appalling spiritual state of Israel, of good people, there were a few. Of good leaders, there were none. And those leaders ruling over Israel, and this had been the case for generations before Jesus came to earth, they were guilty of dereliction of duty. And at the heart of that dereliction of duty, and this is true of every instance of God's people falling into dereliction of duty 
at the very heart of that dereliction is neglect of prayer. Hence, Jesus responds with this parable we have at the beginning of uh, chapter 18. Now, he does something very strange here. I, I can't recall him doing anything like this um, anywhere else. He first gives an explanation of the parable he's about to give. And then he details the parable itself. He spoke a parable unto them, verse 1, to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. That's the explanation of the parable. And then he goes into detail about the parable. And in it, as we read, he pictures this woman. And she's petitioning a cruel judge in verses 2 to 7. Now, unlike the Jews, this woman did persist in petitioning this judge until at last he listened to her and she was rewarded. He said in verse 5, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Now, the unasked question that uh, is set before the Jews here is, why haven't you persisted in petitioning God, especially for leadership? I'm referring to Noah's day and to Lot's day as well in chapter 17. He warns them of the inevitability of judgment. However, spiritual decline right across the board in every age and generation is due in the first instance to lack of prayer, neglect of prayer. Now, if you are in a backslidden state here this evening, or if you know of anyone who's in a backslidden state, I will guarantee you that that backsliding began with neglect of prayer. It's always where the problem begins for believers. And that's why Peter gives us that solemn warning in 1 Peter chapter 4. Judgment must begin at the house of God. 2,000 years later, here's another warning. When the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? What a solemn question. I want to look at this from two or three perspectives. First of all, I want to look at how to view the future for ourselves. Now, we believe that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, be that good or be that evil. God has foreordained it all so that the entire story of the universe, of the world, of humanity, of the Christian church, it's all there already set in the concrete of God's eternal decree. Nothing happens in this world, my friends, that has not been foreordained by our great sovereign God. And within that plan, every detail of life on earth, every detail of your life, and the life of your children is taken care of 
in the eternal decree of God. Now that's our future from God's perspective. Everything is mapped out. And as you live life from moment to moment, all you are doing is you are living the, uh, the, the, the plan that God has already set out for you. Now, back in the day, before science, falsely so-called, began to overshadow the Bible, there was broad agreement prevailing in the Reformed Christian Church over the fundamentals of the gospel. Broad agreement. Wouldn't matter where you went. Wouldn't matter which denomination you visited. There was broad agreement over the fundamentals of the gospel. All of our other disagreements on other things, like baptism and such like things, but on the fundamentals of the gospel, Christ coming into this world, dying for the sin of sinners, raised on the third day for the justification. All of that was agreed upon. However, things slowly began to change. And the Christian church abandoned the philosophy by which she operated for centuries. Thus says the Lord. Darwinian evolution and the science, or can I add again, science falsely so-called, the science of higher criticism. This is the science by which men question the content of the Holy Bible. These two in particular, Darwinian evolution and higher criticism, began to undermine Christian confidence in numerous ways. After World War II, I'm always surprised when I think about this. After World War II, Christian values slowly began to slide. Now, wouldn't you think that after God delivering us from a worst kind of tyranny twice during the last century, World War I, World War II. Wouldn't you think that Christian values would only be enhanced in the world? But no, no. Christian values became like Winston Churchill. Tried to get rid of them. From the 1960s, society and the church were both affected by this. Attitude to morals and ethics began changing. And in the 1960s, we had surely what must be the most absurd contradiction in the history of modern politics. On the one hand, our nation, the United Kingdom, did away with capital punishment putting to death the worst kind of criminals, murderers, and such like. While at the same time legalizing the murder of unborn babies. It surely must be the greatest 
political contradiction in the history of modern politics. Christians were slowly being persuaded to become less and less rigid in their values and in their, in their understanding of religious things. Now, running alongside all of this, in Christian church circles, <clears throat> new interpretations were being put on the end times, on what's going to happen at the end of the world when Jesus comes the second time. Now, some of these views did exist in biblical times, but only faintly. There weren't, there weren't major issues at all. In fact, from the time of Augustine, um, every view uh, disappeared except for one. But from the late 1800s and into the 1900s, these views became mainstream, and three major schools emerged. One was, they were based, by the way, on the phrase, the thousand years in Revelations chapter 20. And the three views were, number one, that the second coming will come before, or will be before the 1,000 years, the millennium. It's called uh, pre-mill. The second one, the second coming of Christ will be after the thousand years, post-mill, it's called. And the third one was that the millennium isn't a thousand years literally at all, but a period of time between the first and second coming of Christ. In other words, you're living in the millennium now. Now, there were numerous other issues associated with all threes. I'm just asking, referring to the principal titles of these uh, views. And furthermore, there's element of, elements of truth in all three of them. Now, I'm not going to comment on them. Uh, one way or the other, uh, except by default, I'm going to focus, focus especially on relevant biblical teaching connected with this topic. For example, Jesus and Paul said nothing, absolutely nothing about a millennium. They never mentioned a thousand year period at the end of the world. I think that's rather significant, don't you? Secondly, reference to this millennium appears only once in the entire Bible, only once in the book of Revelation and in chapter 20, a highly symbolic book, I hasten to add. And thirdly, the Bible describes for us what human conduct will be like as we approach the second coming of Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there will be a falling away first before Christ comes a second time, a falling away from Christian things. And the Bible also teaches us that the trajectory of this world, with every tick of the clock, is toward the day of judgment. And also that all of humanity, including you, including me, we must appear before God at this judgment. We must all appear at the judgment seat of Christ, we're taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And most important of all, the Bible reminds us that God has provided this world with an opportunity to prepare for that judgment, to prepare through the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. That message is as simple as it is profound. Son of God died on the cross of Calvary to pay the penalty due to sinners. And as I look out on you here this evening, how many of you actually believe that? I know some of you do because I know you personally. What about those of you who don't? What hope do you have for appearing before the judgment seat of Christ, which you certainly will? What hope do you have? Leave that with you. Let me move on to look at the state of our world. Now, in the light of all I've said, what do we to make of this text? When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Now, at very least, Jesus is suggesting to us the future is not bright, not even for the Christian church. Now, when we step back and look objectively, at our present world, you will need to be blind not to see something has gone drastically wrong with our world and with the Christian church as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the United Kingdom, we have two main state denominations, formally recognized as representing state religion. South of the border, we have the Anglican Church, the Church of England. North of the border, we have the Church of Scotland. Now, few people, my friends, few people will argue that these denominations have remained committed to biblical teaching in numerous areas of gospel Christian doctrine. Whatever their official position, and they're very keen to point, oh, this is our official position. Well, whatever the official position is, both denominations violate God's moral, ethical, and spiritual principles in their practice, and they do it every single day. Now, these aren't, of course, the only denominations guilty of such errors. Apostate churches abound in every nation 
throughout the Western world. Now, that's not me sitting judge and jury over these churches. That's their public profile. They boast in it. They don't hide it. So between church and state, things, in my view, have never looked so bleak. Now, we know from history that our world has, on numerous occasions, gone through many, many evil faces. The worst, of course, on record was the time of Noah. When we read in Genesis 6, every imagination of the thought of man's heart was evil continually. And that was followed by numerous instances of further widespread evil right up to recent times in the last century where we had men like Stalin and Hitler and Mao and Pol Pot and many other despotic dictators. So what then makes our generation so wicked, so evil, so despairing? And I'm suggesting you that we are more wicked, more evil, more despairing than previous generations. How can you say that, says you, when you look back at the Holocaust of last century and numerous other awful, awful instances of human conduct? Two things. Two things are making our day and generation particularly wicked and particularly evil and particularly despairing. Number one, the widespread acceptance of depraved conduct. This was never before part of the human story. The widespread acceptance of depraved conduct. Not the widespread practice, but the acceptance of it. And the second thing, the sinful silence of the Christian church, broadly speaking, in challenging such evil. Now, let me expand a little on these two points. Former generations, your grandfather and your grandmother, former generations were and would have been reversed by what is being normalized today. To use a phrase, they would turn in their grave if they could see what our generation considers normal. Same-sex marriage, the slaughter of the unborn, the sexualization of children, much more besides. We are worse than Sodom ever was. And it's all, this, is the, this is the tragedy of our day. It's all being done and carried out in deliberate defiance of God and of biblical morality. You see, the dictators of last century, like Hitler and Stalin and the rest of them, they were actually aberrations 
in the pattern of human conduct. They were the exception. They weren't the rule. Most civilized people recognized during those years that men like Adolf Hitler were not the norm. They recognized that they were exceptionally evil people. Most people weren't like that. Thanks to biblical morality, most of the Western world recognized good from evil. There was broad acceptance of what is contained in God's moral law. Even those who didn't know that law, they did accept what was presented to them in Western nations as the morals and ethics of Christianity. Even the promiscuous 1960s, they never threatened children with adult practices. In other words, society had a decent moral conscience, thanks to the influence of Christianity. However, over the past two decades, the Western world has deliberately turned away from God and turned away from Christianity. Societies have spiraled into a cesspool of evil conduct. Now, and I say this with shame and embarrassment, boys can choose to be girls. And girls can choose to be boys. Schools are teaching adult content to children as young as five years of age. Marriage, if it exists at all, can mean anything. Absolutely anything. Family has become a despised term. And governments are freely legislating in favor of whatever fits under the banner of LGBTQIA2AS and still adding on. My friends, the brakes are off in evil conduct. And that's why our generation is worse than any previous generation. You see, Noah's peers didn't abandon God. They didn't know God. Sodom never legalized their evil conduct. They never pretended this was normal. Stalin, Hitler, Mao, they didn't abandon God either. They were atheists. Whereas the Western world in our day and generation has made a conscious decision to abandon God and to abandon Christianity and to abandon the morals and ethics of Holy Scripture. Nowadays, our leaders are dancing to the tune 
of every evil ism under the sun. Meanwhile, where is the Christian church in all of this? With few exceptions, my friends, with few exceptions, not only is the church silent in challenging all of this, the church is complicit in much of what's going on. I'm ashamed, utterly and absolutely ashamed of so many people who call themselves my brothers and sisters in Christ. Hence the relevance of our Lord's question. When the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? Let me, I, I warn you in the, more, in, in, in the beginning of this sermon, this is a hard sermon, but I'm not apologizing for it. Let me move thirdly to look at what the scripture says in all of this. Paul warned in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, in the last days, perilous times shall come. Couldn't he have said that up at the United Kingdom today? Listen to his definition of perilous times. And I want you to think of our society as I read through this. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, no self-control, despisers of those that are good, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, a perfect echo of the church and state in 2022 in the United Kingdom. Do you not agree? Over recent years and throughout the Western world, it's as if an invisible hand has been directing the conduct of our leaders in both church and state. An invisible hand. Let me give you some examples. In Canada, euthanasia was introduced in 2016, virtually for anyone. You wouldn't have to be terminally ill. You wouldn't have to be suffering from severe pain. Virtually anyone who wanted to be euthanized could be euthanized. 2016. 1,000 Canadian citizens applied to be euthanized that year. 1,000. Six years later, and the latest statistics are available up to last summer. Six years later, that figure has mushroomed to 31,000 Canadian citizens being euthanized. 
virtually by their government. In the United States of America, world-renowned medical centers, a number of them, I'm just going to mention one of them, the Vanderbilt Medical University in Tennessee, now openly perform mastectomies on teenage girls and castrate teenage boys that don't like their biological bodies. They're boasting in it. In the United Kingdom, in some NHS areas, at least one in Scotland in Tayside, 12-year-old boys who are admitted to hospital for any kind of procedure are given a form, and on that form they are told they can have babies. Here, in Presbyterian Scotland. Friends, it is sheer lunacy. It is from the pit. And that is the hand, the invisible hand, that is directing all of this. And that's precisely the answer the Bible gives. You see, the hand of evil was tied in the victory of Jesus Christ at Calvary. Of fallen angels, we are told in the word of God, Jude verse 6, God has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. In other words, before the cross, Satan ruled the entire world other than the nation of Israel. Every other nation in both hemispheres were ruled by Satan. He boasted in it. He even boasted in it to God. God challenged him on one occasion in the story of Job. You'll find this in the uh, early chapter 1 or chapter 2 of, of the book of Job. God challenged Satan and he asked him, where have you been? And he gave him this answer quite proudly. Going to and fro in the earth, walking up and down in it. In other words, I was surveying my kingdom, of course. Where did you expect me to be? That's why the New Testament states in 1 John chapter 5, this is referring to life before the cross. The whole world lieth in wickedness. Revelations chapter 12, Satan which deceiveth the whole world. Jesus changed all that, my friends. It was changed at the cross and at the empty grave. So that we can read in Revelations 20, God shut him up. Satan, God shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more for a thousand years. That's symbolic as far as I am concerned of the New Testament era. In other words, there is only one thing that can shut Satan up 
There is only one thing that can bind the hand of Satan, and it's the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. History demonstrates clearly for us, my friends, that where the Christian church is established and where the gospel is, pro- is preached faithfully, Satan is a defeated enemy. That's why, my friends, in our island communities, satanic activity was almost nil. Apart from common temptations, you wouldn't find any witches coven here. Why? Because of the power of the gospel. That's why. However, the Bible also warns us that following this symbolic period of a thousand years, Revelations 20, Satan must be loosed a little season. And I will suggest to you, my friends, our present age has all the hallmarks of that loosing of Satan. Today, the leaders of the United States of America, Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, they are all aliens to biblical ethics. They all advocate everything God hates. Every one of them. But it's worse than that. Because, my friends, the bus has run away from all of them. You see, the seat of power and influence has now moved from the political chamber to social media. That's what policy is now being formulated, not in the political chamber, but on social media. And that, my friends, has become a viper's nest of sheer evil. You see, social media has no moral compass. Social media has no ethical standard. Social media has no defined conscience. Social media is where Satan is running loose. And in the midst of all of this, the caliber of the Christian church is collapsing. Throughout the Western world, the church, in many instances, has abandoned her Bible, abandoned the rule and standard of God's holy word. The church has become complicit in promoting sinful lifestyles, The church has polluted the holy ministry with graceless charlatans. And the church in too many instances has become what Jesus described as a synagogue of Satan. He saw all this coming. Our Lord saw it all coming. Hence his question. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find Faith on the earth. 
Our time has gone. I want to apply this in terms of questioning four areas, or at least highlighting four areas of decline amongst ourselves. And these areas are evident to various degrees amongst us as a nation, amongst us as a church, and further afield as well. But we're concerned in the first instance about our own locality, of course. Four areas of this decline that forms part of the collapse of the fabric of the Christian church. First of all, and I'm just going to mention them in a word, numeric decline. Years ago, churches in our island communities, whereas you know, those of you who are older, you will remember, they were full on the Lord's Day evening. 30 years ago, when as a family we moved to Glasgow, we used to worship on Kenneth Street, and that church regularly held 1,200 people every Sabbath evening. Ten years ago, this congregation had a healthy number of people worshiping here. Both congregations, my friends, without question, are now in serious decline. But it's not just these two congregations. It's across the board. There is serious numeric decline in the Christian community as far as church attendance is concerned. Number two, there is religious decline. People are becoming less and less religious. And we can see it. Almost day by day by day. One example. The evidence is there in the changing attitudes to the Sabbath day. Businesses, businesses are open. Ferries are sailing. Planes are flying. It's obvious that a religious observance is seriously waning amongst us. Just go down to Ingis on a Sabbath morning. Go down to the ferry, as Mr. Fraser does. You'll see it all there. Thirdly, there is spiritual decline. The spiritual temperature, my friends, has plunged over recent years. And the main culprit for that plunge in the spiritual temperature is worldliness amongst the Lord's people. Because worldliness is intolerant of spiritual thought. Worldliness is intolerant of spiritual thought. That's only too evident in today's society. But it can affect believers. It does affect believers. True spirituality, my friends, is a rare thing in the Christian church today. And finally, personal decline. Numeric, religious, spiritual, personal decline. Here's, I suppose, the most troubling aspect of modern life for believers. Our own personal decline in holy things. Isn't it true? Those of you who have 
been on the way for a few years. Isn't it true that few of us, oh, so few of us, enjoy the love, the seal, and the thirst for righteousness with which we began as Christians? Hence the challenge of our Lord's question, when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? Now, if Jesus were to come tomorrow, how would he find the free church of Scotland continuing? How would he find this congregation? How would he find you? How would he find me? These are serious questions, my friends. We have to ask them. Let's ensure that through diligent prayer, reading of the scriptures, trusting in Jesus Christ, and exercising faith and repentance, that we will not be like Belshazzar, who was weighed in the balances and found wanting. Let me close with this. The Old Testament era concluded with a plea from God. Malachi 3 verse 7. Return unto me and I will return unto you, saith the Lord. Saith the Lord. The merciful God of heaven. The God who delights in pardon and in forgiveness. My friends, each one of us here and those who are listening online, let's make this our diligent prayer. A prayer for the entire Christian church. A prayer for ourselves to turn in repentance to God. A prayer that would beg God for a spiritual revival of Pentecostal portions. Proportions. And thereby secure a future for our children. And thereby allowing us to be confident of our own eternal destiny. Let's pray. O oh, gracious and blessed God, we pray that there will always be, and we know that there will always be, a witness and a church when that trumpet sounds. But we are not missing the point thou didst make 2,000 years ago. We're in a serious situation. And we have to do more than mere prayer. We have to watch and pray. And we have to be alert to the devices of that wicked enemy, Satan, as he seeks every day to undermine the church, to undermine our own personal faith, and to vent his hatred for the lover of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. In thy great and infinite mercy, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.